turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 6, and we'll read through to verse 10. I want to talk to you today on the subject of saved from the wrath to come. Romans 5, verse 6, where the Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, in the process of time, God's calendar, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We'll stop there and we'll talk about the subject, saved from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians, the very first chapter, the verses are 9 and 10, the Bible says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Perhaps you're not acquainted with this truth, but it is what runs right through the New Testament. It's what the communion supper means. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's not just merely, you know, getting a new start in life, but you are getting a new start in life. It's not merely just fulfilling some type of success story, which we hear so much today about in the pulpits, which is unfortunate. That's not the doctrine of the New Testament. It's that we've been saved from the wrath to come. We hear and we speak in our churches about walking in the Spirit. And I want to just share with you some words from A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, and his definition of walking in the Spirit. Just listen to what he says. What is spiritual power? First, it is the power which convicts of sin. It is the power that makes the hearers to see themselves as God sees them and humbles them in the dust. It sends people home from the house of God, not feeling better, but worse. Not always admiring the preacher, but often so tried that they perhaps resolve that they will never hear him again. But they know from their inmost soul that he is right and they are wrong. It is the power of conviction. The power that awakens the conscience and says to the soul, you are the man. It is the power of which the apostle speaks in connection with his own ministry. Quote, by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They that possess this power will not always be popular preachers, but they will always be effectual workers. Sometimes the hearer will almost think that they are personal and that someone has disclosed to them his secret sins. Speaking of such a sermon, one of our most honored evangelists said that he felt so indignant with the preacher under whom he was converted that he waited for some time near the door for the purpose of giving him a thrashing for daring to expose him in the way he had done, meaning publicly, thinking that somebody had informed on him, let us covet this power. It is the very stamp and seal of the Holy Ghost on a faithful minister. There are times when God is speaking so clearly, which we know and read of as the anointing, 
Simpson was talking about, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? And he talked here, first of all, about preachers and their preaching. To convict an individual of sin. So that you here, in your spirit, in one way or another, you're the man. You're the person God is speaking to today. Preachers that have this will come across this, where someone will think the message they were preaching was designed for them, that somehow they designed that message for that one person. I've had that in my ministry on one particular occasion. A man came to church who had been invited and was sitting with my wife and kept leaning over to her during the message saying, why is he talking about me? And he was serious. It wasn't a joke. He was serious. Why is he talking about me? The Holy Spirit has the power to make the Bible come alive. Without the Holy Spirit, even though they are God's words, they're just words. Save from the wrath to come. That's what this is all about. What others are preaching and teaching, I don't know. But I know this. When the Holy Spirit is touching the vessel, whoever that may be, of preaching the Word of God, it has a way of affecting you that others cannot do. I heard a young man preaching, and it came through my feed, and he was very animated, and everything that he said was very true. It was good doctrine. But there was just that sense of lacking, in my own opinion. It just seemed to lack that sense of it's catching on to my soul. You can't duplicate that anointing. You can't duplicate the power of the Holy Spirit to make the Word of God be real to you. Preachers can't do it either, except it's done by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. Then you sense or you feel that the message was given to the preacher just for you, nobody else. You feel it's very personal. You read the revivals of Finney and see that preachers, their wives got angry at Finney for daring to preach and say the things that he did, but all he did was repeat what the Bible says. I remember some years ago I was invited by a friend of mine, an evangelist, to the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. That was before I was on the radio and television. And so I went, National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Washington, D.C., and here you had thousands and thousands of the superstars of Christianity. The ones you're watching on television, the ones you're hearing on the radio. And not only that, but you have the owners and founders and CEOs of multiplied radio stations and television stations. You have some very powerful people. People with authority, people with money, people with a lot of influence. And that day, the guest speaker was Billy Graham. And you couldn't get into this breakfast without tickets, which we did not have. But someone gave them to the friend of mine, the evangelist. There was two. And he gave them to me, and I was with his son. And he says, here, you guys go, and you listen to it. He says, I'm good, and all that. And so we took them. And we went in, and we sat down at a table that was pretty close to the pulpit, to the dais. And I want to let you know, that's about 40 years ago, but I still can feel the effect of the words of Billy Graham that morning as he spoke to all these powerful people. Keep in mind, these are the CEOs. These are the guys that are running his program on radio, running his crusades on television. I can't even remember the text that he used. I just remember feeling spellbound as Billy Graham was talking to these men and women, owners, CEOs, evangelists, powerful people, people you've seen on television. And he was proposing questions such as, and why don't we hear about sin anymore? I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that room. And why don't we hear about sin anymore? And he's speaking to the people that are on the television or on the television stations. And then he kept saying, and another thing, why don't we hear about hell? 
in his own inimitable way of speaking, he would say, and another thing, and he would go on all these doctrines that we don't hear any longer. Now, I'm not going to go into the reasons why we don't hear them as much as to say that that impressed me so much, that speech. I was already not only saved, I was already a pastor. I rededicated my life that morning, right there. And I've rededicated my life many, many times over the years. When you sense the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you're the man. You're the one. Talking to everybody else, but even though God is speaking to everybody else. Let me say this. Your heart has to be prepared by you to hear the words of God. Because I'll just offer this as an opinion. That speech evidently did not affect too many of these owners of the radio stations and television stations. Because not only the programs have to stay the same, they got worse. But I know that day it affected me. I know it affected me. They were even giving out some Bibles, which I had plenty of Bibles then and I have even more now. But I remember taking a brand new Bible and writing in it, I am now rededicating my life to the Lord. Such is the effect of what Simpson wrote about the power of the Holy Spirit to make the words of God come alive to the individual. And we are saved from the wrath to come. I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way. I truly do. But I remind you every once in a while that I enjoy what I have coined. Some have borrowed it and used it. I enjoy a supernatural indifference to what people think about me as long as my conscience is clear that I did my best to give the word of God as plain as I can as it's written. I have made a decision a long time ago that I'm not going to live to please people. Because no one here, no one watching, no one listening by the way of radio, no one on the earth is going to be my judge at the end. It'll be Jesus. I have to give a report to Jesus. But whether people like the gospel or they don't like the gospel or they accept it or they don't accept it, that's not in my hands. That's in the hands of God. Concerning churches in general, A.W. Tozer wrote these words that's similar to what Simpson wrote about walking in the spirit. Tozer wrote many years ago, quote, I say that a Christian congregation can survive and often appear to prosper in the community by the exercise of human talent and without any touch from the Holy Spirit. All that religious activity and the dear people will not know anything better until the great and terrible day when our self-employed talents are burned with fire and only that which was wrought by the Holy Ghost will stand forever. Tozer said that many years ago, and I believe that he's correct. I believe that you can build a church, not Jesus' church, but you could build a church by all types of clever things, of human talents that were given by God, and ingenuity, and all of these things, and do it without the Holy Spirit. You could even do it without Jesus. But you can't build Jesus' church without Jesus. You can't build Jesus' church without the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, my house shall be called the house of prayer. So why is it the least of all the meetings of a week or a month or a year that a church has? Why is it the least attended when Jesus said, My house shall be called the house of prayer? Something to ponder. Something to think about. And it may be because we're not really, really confident in this book. And it may be that we're not really confident of what the end of man will be without Jesus. That we're not really 100% there. I mean, surely God is good, and he understands, and we go through all these inventions of the mind. But then we look at Jesus, and in a minute we're going to look at John the Baptist and see what he said. And that's what it all boils down to. What does the text say? In Matthew chapter 3, 
Speaking of John Baptist or John the Baptist, at verse 1 it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins out loud. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat, which means fitting, for true repentance. That's John the Baptist. And for those of you who have read through the Bible and have a habit of reading through the Bible, hopefully you start your Bible reading off with prayer. You'll notice that there's something different about the preachers and prophets that we read in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in the Gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than much of what we hear today. As Simpson noted, most of the preachers, and I think I could say all of the preachers in the Bible, were not popular with the people. But they were preachers, anointed by the Holy Spirit. They even performed miracles. Jesus said of cities where he preached and healed the sick and people were happy that they were free from their sicknesses and their diseases, even death. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the deeds that were done in you have been done in Sodom and in Gomorrah, it would be standing to this day. He said, greater than Solomon is here, but he was rejected of men. By and large, the truth of the scriptures is rejected of men. I want to read you a commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where the Bible is very plain and very clear. And here's the commentary. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit or have any share in the kingdom, kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor perversely effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, whose words are used as weapons to abuse, insult, humiliate, intimidate, or slander, nor swindlers will inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God. And such were some of you before you believed, but you were washed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You were sanctified and set apart for God and made holy. You were justified, declared free of guilt in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of our God, which is the source of the believer's new life and changed behavior. That's what we did last week here. It wasn't just a cleansing. It wasn't just some type of ritual that we do that has no meaning at all. As I explained during the baptism, we took these people and put them into a watery grave. All that was done in the past is not only forgiven, but now it's changed because when we bring them back up, as we read in Romans chapter 6, they are to walk in a newness of life. And that newness of life is described here. I do want to make mention of one thing, though. And in this commentary that I just read, the word homosexual is used where we don't see that word precisely in the old English of the King James. And I would caution you... And I will testify to you 
that in my ministry I have had more problems with those that abuse, insult, humiliate, and intimidate or slander with their tongues than I ever did with the homosexual. You see, we have a temptation sometimes to think now that we're saved from the wrath to come, we're high and mighty. Let me tell you something, there's only one person in the universe that's high and mighty, Amen. and that's God Almighty. Amen. Now, it doesn't excuse the behavior, but there's a lot, there's a lot written here. There are some not here with us today because they're hung over from the night before. When they'll come maybe next week or the week after with a Bible in their hand. And I'm not advocating sinless perfectionism. I'm just simply saying we need the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to make these things real. The Apostle Paul writing of the, the aegis of the Holy Spirit says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not make the kingdom of God? And that's what you were. But if that's what I was, that's past. That's not what I am. And it's not what you ought to be either. Jesus' message about the wrath to come was given, first of all, to religious leaders. Well, here we have John the Baptist. Jesus, of course, had even more run-ins with him than John the Baptist. And let me tell you something. And I learned this 17 years ago in the denomination that I was with for 23 years, and I opposed them, that this has not changed, that there is nothing new under the sun, that man is fairly predictable, Satan is certainly predictable, and we repeat the same things over and over again. That's why I advise you, seek for Christ. Seek for Jesus. And he's easy enough to be found in the manner of speaking. Just flip open Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And you're going to find, just like these preachers of the Old and New Testaments and Jesus himself, that those who are like the Sadducees and Pharisees and so on, they will oppose you. They'll even do it with a Bible. But the Bible cannot be twisted and manipulated to come out in the way that people want. It is what it is. It says what it says. Amen. And that's what we have. For me, I've always wanted to know the truth. I would much rather go to my doctor and hear the bad news, if that's what it gets down to, than him to lie to me or her to lie to me and say, no, everything's fine. When the tests are conclusive that everything is not fine, I've always been the type of person that would prefer to know the truth. And it is time, as I named this ministry, what, 33, 34 years ago, the time for truth. It is the time for truth. You know, there are many professing Christian people all over this land, all over this country, from coast to coast, east to west, north to south. I've never heard one single message on holiness, on hell, on sin, like Billy Graham talked about many, many years ago. And they know nothing of what's called the wrath of God. Now, there's the verses in the Bible that appeal to us more so than the fact that God announces in advance, number one, this is what makes me angry. And number two, if you persist in it, you're going to feel the effect of my anger. Well, that's hard to preach to Americans. Americans just snap their fingers. They decide, I don't like this place anymore. Or as A.B. Simpson said, I don't like the preacher. I don't care for him. I'm not going to listen to him anymore. But the truth is still the truth, no matter what the source. And for us, the source is the book, the Bible, and what it says. Let's read again the words of John Baptist this time from Luke's account in chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and of the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene and Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now Luke adds something here. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. It's a metaphor. The humble will be raised up, the high and mighty will be brought down. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. In other words, we're Jews. But you know what? It's not just the Jews. I remember, you know, years ago when I was first born again, you speak to someone and say, well, hey, I'm Catholic, meaning Roman Catholic. Well, I belong to the Greek Orthodox Church. We're Pentecostals, and that is not what the book says. The book doesn't acknowledge the denominations that exist today. It only acknowledges itself, the book, Scripture compared with Scripture. Don't say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. We're Jews. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise us up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Fruit. Something people can see. Something God can see. I don't, as you well know, I don't preach my dreams almost never, but today is an exception. I've been having dreams since I was born, and remember quite a lot of them, long, long time. Not all of them are of God, there's something about dreams that is definitely mysterious, but I dream every single night, I always have. About 40 years ago, I had a dream that disturbed me so much, I actually went to my pastor to see if he had any understanding of what this dream may mean. After all, we are Pentecostals. We're the cream of the crop. We're at the top of the heap. The same type of arrogance that has invaded every denomination just winds up creeping in, even to local churches and whatever. When are we going to learn that it's humility that God is looking for? In this dream, I was walking into a brick building, but the problem was that the brick building was missing a lot of bricks. And if I could try to draw a picture for you, there was big gaping holes where the building was just narrowly standing in one corner upon maybe on two bricks. And the same over here, and bricks missing over there. And it was a very precarious building, one that you did not want to walk into. Had been missing many, many bricks, and many of the bricks were loose. But outside, there was a saw, and the saw was dripping with oil. And I took the saw and proceeded to go into the building, and that was the end of the dream. That's 40 years ago, and it still stays in my mind. I did not have any idea of what that dream could have meant, neither did my pastor when I went to him, but I do believe I have an idea now. You see, the church that men build in Jesus' name, even if the motivation is good, I mean, they're trying to do the right thing, it's going to crumble and fall. Jesus said, every plant that is not planted by my Father will be rooted up. Which would mean that if I'm doing all these things to attract people and to make them converts, to say this and repeat after me and do this and do this, then you're my convert. But converts to men, to people, don't work out well. Converts to Jesus do. The saw is obviously a cutting tool and a building tool, dripping with oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what it meant 40 years ago, but I do believe I know what it means now. 
My personal experience in the ministry is vastly different from what I pictured in the beginning. Unlike what Simpson said, and I didn't know even who he was when I was first born again, I just assumed that you get up and open the book and everybody loves it. Everybody loves the book. They love to hear this, save from the wrath to come. Well, perhaps they love the save part, but they're not even going to talk, not even to their closest friends about wrath to come. It's on every news station. It's in every newspaper. It's all around us. It's everywhere. We're watching the signs of the times. All the signs that Jesus talked about, all the signs the apostles talked about, that these would be the signs that would precede the coming of Christ, but he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And we need this. Why do we need this? Because it's a doctor telling us the truth about our condition. Amen, That's why we need it. Again, I don't know of too many people, and there are some, perhaps, I guess, who would go to a doctor and would say to the doctor, don't tell me the truth about my cancer, my heart disease, my condition. Tell me lies. And I don't know of many doctors, by virtue of the fact that there's a legal system and some code of ethics and honor, that would do that. That would promise a patient, I'll tell you lies. Don't just come, we'll do the blood work, we'll do all the x-rays, we'll run tests, and no matter what the tests say, I'll keep telling you how good it is. And you're all right. This type of preaching is dangerous. We need to know these four words. Thus saith the Lord. Now you say, Pastor Barnett, where do you get off talking to me like that? Well, I didn't. Ezekiel did. Jeremiah did. Solomon did in Proverbs. David and others in Psalms. Jesus, the Apostle Paul. I didn't. I read it. I embellish it a bit with some illustrations. This is like that. Pray and let the word go forth. As I've always liked to remind people, I didn't write the Bible. You know, I could because the time is short. I'm feeling as I get older to be more and more to the point, more and more blunt. I didn't write the Bible, but you could find preachers that act like they did. They know how to take out the penknife of Jehuda and cut out certain sections because you don't read the Bible. You don't even know what's in there. So when you hear a preacher talking from the Bible, you swear to yourself, this guy's making it up. But I say to you, go home and read it for yourself. And again, I remind you that the commentaries that I use, they're available to you. You see, when we hear the Word of God being preached today, and it is, thankfully, around the world, it seems strange to our ears because we've never heard this before. Well, we live in an age of apostasy, that's for sure. So then it becomes startling to hear wrath to come, a place called hell. I want to read to you again another commentary, this time from the book of Galatians. We're familiar with this chapter here, our church. And I want to read it to you in plain English. Now the practices, notice the word practice, the practices of the sinful nature are clearly evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, total irresponsibility, lack of self-control, idolatry, <clears throat> sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions that promote heresies, envy, drunkenness, riotous behavior, and other things like these, I warned you beforehand, just as I did previously, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me just pause there, a little interlude, and say that this is talking about what real grace is. When we talk about the grace of God and his mercy, they're really two separate things. I mean, they go together, but mercy is mercy, and grace is a dynamic activity of the Holy Spirit that changes you. 
It changes the way you view the world, the way you see the world. It changes the way you think. It changes your direction. It changes your priorities. It changes everything about you. Therefore, you are born again. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote these words, saying, again, you have to know this. You must know this. Don't you know this? You don't know this? That those that practice, and that's the key word, practice these things, they're not going to see the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the result of his presence within us is love and unselfish concern for others, joy, inner peace, patience, the ability to wait, and how we act while we're waiting. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This is from the Word of God. That's, that's a paraphrase, using it as a commentary. But we don't want to be deceived. Keep in mind in the 24th chapter of Matthew, Jesus, when he was asked about the signs of the times and his coming and all that, the very first thing he mentioned was deception. Pretty much it boils down to this. <clears throat> if I call myself a Christian, I am. And you have no right to question me. I think it kind of boils down to that. But the Word of God, when you pick it up, if you pick it up, it's always looking at you and examining you. And so we have an option to say, I'm not going to read this anymore. I don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Give me a good motivational speaker that can tell me how I can use human ingenuity to reach my potential. You know, if I can conceive it and believe it, I can achieve it. Napoleon Hill, who admits right in his book that he was getting his doctrine from devils and demons, it's right in his book. It's not like he hid it. It's not like somebody made it up. These special visitors at night and talk to him about these things. But Jesus comes along, fulfilling the words of the prophets, and says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Those are the words of Jesus, and they don't make any sense at all. If I can be, quote, successful, I mean, by the world's definition, successful, without him. He came to save us from the wrath to come. Be sure of this. God is merciful and patient, and everything is developing very slowly, though it seems like it's speeding up recently. Because God is not willing that any should perish. But be sure that the day is marked on God's calendar when it will come. And we are saved from the wrath to come through the cross of Christ, through the blood of Jesus. I brought to you the words of John Calvin last week. May I remind you one more time. Let me say it to you this way. If anyone should know what Calvinism stands for, it should be John Calvin. On the Christian life, he said, this is the place to address those who, having nothing of Christ but the name and sign, would yet be called Christians. How dare they boast this sacred name? It's John Calvin. None have intercourse with Christ but those who have acquired the true knowledge of him from the gospel. The apostle denies that any man truly has learned Christ who has not learned to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and put on Christ. They are convicted, therefore, of falsely and unjustly pretending a knowledge of Christ, whatever be the volubility, eloquence which which they can talk of the gospel. Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. It's not apprehended by the intellect and memory merely, like other branches of learning, but it's received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds its seat and habitation in the inmost recesses of the heart. Let them therefore either cease to insult God by boasting that they are what they are not. And I want to remind you one more time, this is John Calvin. Or let them show themselves not unworthy disciples of their divine master. Like my dad used to say, you fish or you cut bait. 
to doctrine in which our religion is contained, we have given the first place, since it is our salvation and commences there. But it must be transfused into the breast and passed into the conduct, and so transform us into itself as not to prove unfruitful. If philosophers are justly offended and banished from their company with disgrace, those who, while professing an art which they ought to be the mistress of their conduct, convert it into mere loquacious sophistry, which how much better reason shall we detest those flimsy sophists who are contented to let the gospel play upon their lips, when from its efficacy it ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, fix its seat in the soul, and pervade the whole man a hundred times more than the frigid discourses of philosophers. What is he saying? He's saying that if you are a Christian, your life will prove it. And how can, well, you know. Because you read the book and it matches up. We talk about reformation, we talk about a great awakening. You know what we need? We need a revival of reading of the Bible. Now you use devotional books and that's fine. But let me tell you something, the best devotional book on the face of the earth, written by the best people, is no substitute for the pure word of God. And God has so arranged things that in this generation, those who would say, but I can't understand it, has given us almost every aid that man can imagine so that you can understand it. But it first comes by prayer and a willingness to obey God. A willingness to go into that brick house that is almost ready to fall and to do the work. It's not enviable work. It's precarious, but not from the standpoint of God. When we meet him, I, for one, don't want to meet him with shame. And be like Saul, King Saul, who when caught by Samuel, the prophet, saying, why didn't you obey God for what you were told to do? And Saul said, I did obey God. And Samuel said, then what's the bleating of the sheep that I hear? Well, we save those for God, the very best for God. And God said, I don't want anything. I don't want anything. That's what God said. The religious nature of man says, uh, well, you know, that's good. That's still good. We'll save that. And we'll give it to God. And then the king, he saved the king. And finally, Saul admits in the presence of a very imposing prophet, Samuel. He says, listen, I was afraid of the people and I obeyed their voice. This is it. The fear of man brings a snare. Jesus said, hey, don't fear man. What can he do to you? No one can take your life. And then that's it. That's it. God has the power to put your soul in a place where you don't want to go. Or he has the power to put your soul in a place where you do want to go. Fear him. Reverence him. I won't mention because we're on the air here. The picture I mentioned on Facebook. I put these things up. You know, things I did when I was younger. Kind of fun, I think. But if anybody thinks that in that picture there with this very famous athlete. That it's like, hey, guess what? Well, you know what? He's just a man. And I've met some fairly famous people in my time, and sometimes I was not impressed. I was like kind of deflated, because you were expecting them to be godlike. And they were anything but. I'm not saying they were bad people, they were just simply people, just like me, just like you. You're not famous. There's nobody here today that's famous in this congregation. One thing I've observed about human nature is that people are the same wherever you go. They're all the same, same needs, same wants, and so on. And God reaches out, and especially in this age where, again, it seems as though, the appearance as though, things are accelerating, and so is the promulgation of the gospel. It's accelerating around the world. And so we come to this verse in the book of the Revelation, chapter 6, and then chapter 11. In chapter 6, verse 12, it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and though there was a great earthquake, 
and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Quite a different picture of these stories we hear about people meeting God almost on a daily basis. Some do it more than once every day, and it's always pleasant. And yet here, we see God appearing, we see it in the Old Testament too, and men shake, and they tremble. God said to Moses, no flesh shall see me and live. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18 and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. That's what you have future. But you see, the question that was raised in Revelation chapter 6, where I just read at that last verse, who shall stand in that day? Who's going to be standing? Well, in Psalm 78, verse 38, it says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Jeremiah 3, verse 12, Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and will not keep anger forever. Now that's mercy. And I will submit to you and I will argue that there's only way for us to have real joy. That's to understand these two things. The wrath is to come, but we've been saved from it. And then even thirdly, that Jesus said, whosoever will. There's no prejudice with God. God doesn't say, well, just white people. No, just black people. No, just the minorities. Men may say that, but God does not. God is the creator of everything. Everything. All things. Every star that we're now seeing and never saw before through the web telescope and on and on. God created it all and he says, whosoever will, come and drink of the waters. If you believe one, the wrath of God, then you must believe the other. I remember distinctly that feeling of knowing, and I mean the real actual physical feeling, that I was under the wrath of God's hand many, many long years ago. And crying out to God for mercy and concurrently with that prayer, this feeling of peace. And begging God, a strange word used today from an American public to American people, and begging God never to let me feel that way again. The peace of God. From that day to this, and it's been a long, long road, I've never regretted one day of following Christ. This Christ, the one that comes from the book. Never regretted it. Rough times, yes. Difficult days, absolutely, but no regrets. I never looked back and said, gee, it was better then, because I know that it wasn't. You know why? Because today I'm saved. I'm not Pentecostal. I'm not Roman Catholic. I'm not Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, or anything else. I'm not a Baptist. I'm not independent. I'm not anything. I'm saved from the wrath to come. I'm saved, saved, saved. For me, that's all that matters. Yes. 
I received an email this week from someone, and that happens from time to time, that's going to correct me on the real way to understand the Bible. And I must tell you, I have a temptation. I almost did it as early this morning. I said, tell me a little more about yourself. You see, this point is that people who think they're saved aren't. But let me get past all of that and tell you this. The book says you have a witness inside yourself as the Holy Spirit, and he communicates so that you don't need someone. He told me, just read my book. It's only 200 pages. I don't think so. I don't have time to watch a 20-minute video of yours. I don't want to write it. I know that I'm saved. I know I'm saved because the book says so. I know I'm saved because the Holy Spirit says so, and he's inside me. And that's all you need to know. You need to know that you're saved from the wrath to come. You know, in all these years, as you can well imagine, how many funerals I've done? It's a lot. And every type of funeral. From sicknesses and cancers and heart disease to car wrecks and drunkenness and drownings and everything else. I've done a lot. And I've heard everything. And I'm telling you that no one can satisfy like Jesus. Your church can't satisfy like Jesus. Your denomination can't satisfy you like Jesus. More than likely, you'll just get caught up in the politics of it. And that's why I left my former denomination. I didn't sign on to be a politician. I signed on to be a preacher. I signed on for Jesus. Like the apostles said to the Gentiles a few things, and they said, Sirs, we will see Jesus. We want to go beyond the apostles. Who will stand? Well, we read here in Romans chapter 5, When we were yet without strength, in due time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I saw in New York City, when it was popular, the play Jesus Christ Superstar. I remember being at a mass, and the preacher was saying, Christ is not a superstar, he's a savior. And in the words of one of the songs, the question is asked, why were you born and raised in a backward town at the wrong time? (laughs) Wrong time? This says he came at exactly the right time. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for you when you said to him, I promise I'll be good. He had already died for the sinner, for you, for me. Let me, let me finish with what I think is perhaps the best illustration that I can think of, of a tragic event that happened just uh, one week ago, and I don't know that he was related to you, Mark, but I just assumed that he was. A pastor's out, local pastor, fairly young man, with his family, going for a swim in the Sacandaga Lake, and the daughter starts to struggle, and she's going down. The father, being a father, jumped in, and he saved her. But he couldn't save himself and drown. And I found it curious, in a good way, that he just happened to be a pastor. I mean, people do her eggs all the time, and they're good things, don't get me wrong, but he just happened to be a pastor. And I said to myself, in reading that story last weekend, Could there be a more apt illustration of what God has done for us? This young man, fairly young man, pastor, jumps in and saves his daughter at the expense of his own life. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. At one time we were called enemies. Now he says, now I call you my friends, friends of Jesus. I don't know that there's a better illustration than the tragic event that happened last weekend right here in our neighborhood, of a man sacrificing his life to save his daughters, which he did. And I thought to myself, as that little girl grows, what will be the memory of her dad? No doubt she'll have many. She's not that old. But she'll never listen. She'll never, ever be able to forget. My dad saved me. 
When you call upon God and you call him Abba, he saved you from the wrath to come. Let others mock. Let the intellectuals discuss whatever they discuss. The agnostics, they come and they go, and the atheists, and all these people. The only thing that's important is in your mind, you remember your father jumped in to save you before you had knowledge that you were even drowning. Abba, Father. Is it not time to be rejoicing? Is it not time for us to be appreciative? As I told you just the other night, the contrariness of human nature. Oh, it's a beautiful sun we've had lately. And someone's going to say, ah, but the grass is all yellow. Needs a lot of water, you know. So God sends the water. And then you say, oh, here's your water. They say, oh, I missed the sun. How about we make up our minds that God is running his universe. Not mine, not yours. He's running his universe. And your father jumped in to save you in the person of Jesus Christ before you even knew you were in trouble. That's the gospel. And gospel means good news. Let's pray today. Father, we bless you. Do pray for the wife and children of the pastor here. Lost his life a week ago. Strengthen them. Help them. Help them to be able to see the purpose. Trust you. For us that are here, God, we look at you so often and say, why, God? Why is this happening to me? And that's just natural for us. But when we think about what could have happened to our lives. And then remember that you jumped into the world to save us. It mitigates the sorrows and it mitigates the confusion and it mitigates all of the chaos that goes on in the heart and mind. And we just say, thanks. Thank you, Lord. Oh God, we come to you in this late hour of history. And men are trying to find solutions to the problems of the world. We'll fault them for that. But as Andre Crouch wrote many, many years ago, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Now, with our hearts bowed today and our heads bowed today, you know, I wonder how many sitting here, maybe watching by way of television. We have people now watching from all over the world, listening by way of radio. I wonder if you fully appreciate what is to come and that Christ has jumped in to save you. And that must be the chief priority of your life. Have you been bearing fruit in your life that others say, what's different about you? something different about you. And at that point, are you able to say, well, it's Jesus. He changed me. Well, this is what we want. This is what God wants. Fruit. So let's go before the Lord just for another minute or so and pray. Say, oh God, let my life bear fruit. Help me to lead others to this knowledge. Pour out your spirit, God. Have mercy on America. We as Americans are used to making fun of our politicians and having good laughs at their expense. But I find in my own heart, the older I get, I'm finding more compassion. So help us, God, today. Fill your people with your spirit, not the ideologies and ideas and cleverness of men, but your spirit. Bring them to their knees and read your word. Change us. Now, while our hearts are bowed, in just another minute here, just want to ask you something. The tendency in our lives is to what the Bible calls backslide. You know, we start out fine, you know, 100%, couple weeks, months, maybe even years, and then all of a sudden, one tick at a time, we just start going off in a different direction, little compromises, little foxes. I just want you to examine your own heart and say, where am I at? Where am I at right now with Jesus? Is the fire still burning? I mean, are you the real deal? Be the real deal. 
Not only do you need it, but the world needs it. They need the real deal. It's going to be tough, but you're going to make it. Saved from the wrath to come. That's our hope. So today, Father God, we bless you and we praise you for your words. You took the time to write them down through 40 different men. Put them in a book so we could read them. Now, God, help us not to forget what you've done for us. You saved us from the wrath to come. Now, my last word is an appeal. Jesus Christ is not your personal Savior. You don't want to be going around saying, Oh, I'm a Catholic. Oh, I'm a Protestant. Oh, I'm a Pentecostal. Oh, I'm a Baptist. You want to be able to say you're saved and that you get your proof from the book, the Bible, not a devotional, not somebody's commentary. Oh, I knew a pastor once and he told me this. Forget it. Get it from the book. Get it straight from God's book. If you're backslidden, acknowledge it. Come to Christ. Come back to Christ. If you don't know Christ, Today, the book says, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to say, Christ, yes, come into my life. Change my heart. And then we come to this, lastly. Jesus said that everything in the law of God hangs on two basic commandments. Love God with everything you have. Your time, your talents, your intellect, your memory, everything. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with your might to the glory of God. Then secondly, it tells us to love one another. And I never finished this thought. I'm going to give it to you now as I conclude. I have not been done as much harm as I have with people with long, sharp tongues. But they'll have to give a report to Christ for that, not me. What I'm trying to say is this. It's those little foxes that trip us up. We're looking at the big things, and certainly they count. But what really ruins churches is the little things. Let's put it all away. And love them with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. Then let's love each other. And we'll be able to sing, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. That beautiful city of God. So Lord, we thank you for all of this. Thank you for the people who were baptized last week. Thank you for fruit. Be able to bear fruit here. Time for truth. And God, we do give you thanks. As our parents taught us, say thank you. And we do, we say thank you. Just remind us all this week, all the rest of this day, to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength, and then to turn and to love one another. We give you all the praise, we give you all the glory, and we give you all the honor today in Jesus' name. Let's give him a hand clap offering today. Amen.